Dwelling Place of Dragons by Marjorie Harshaw. This production, narrated by Donald McCone, is brought to you by Irish Voices, Conversations with the Irish Diaspora. Dwelling Place of Dragons, the prologue. At harvest time in 1649, Oliver Cromwell and his English army swept into Ireland. The attitude of the Puritan government in England that prompted the invasion was made clear in a pamphlet written by a Puritan lawyer and preacher, Nathaniel Ward. I get upon my hands and knees that the expedition against them, the Irish, be undertaken while the hearts and hands of our soldiery are hot. Cursed be he who holdeth back the sword from blood, yea, cursed be he that maketh not the sword stark drunk with Irish blood, who doth not recompense them double for their treacherousy to the English, but maketh them in heaps on heaps, and their country the dwelling place of dragons, an astonishment for nations. Cromwell indeed left Ireland a dwelling place of dragons. Despite the success of Cromwell's invasion, England's control over the surviving Irish seemed insecure. Settlers from the lowland of Scotland, as well as northern England, were encouraged through the gift of free land to settle permanently to control and civilise the scarcely human Irish. This mission was facilitated when an English civil war between Catholic and Protestant claimants was fought on Irish soil. Following the defeat of King James by his son-in-law, William of Orange, the Protestant population increased. Many of those immigrants settled either in Ulster or the area around Dublin. These efforts failed to suppress the sense of the native Irish that they were a separate nation and should be independent. Finally, the English attempted to end any such claim by forcing the Act of Union of 1800 through the Irish Parliament. Practically, the Irish Parliament voted its own extermination and transferred all power over England to the English Parliament. Theoretically, it made two nations into one, all Irish residents becoming English citizens with English rights. This was a commitment difficult to fulfil because several contentious issues presented obstacles. First, the Nathaniel Ward perspective of the Irish people continued strong and active. The majority of English leaders viewed Irishmen as too primitive to deserve even token equality with Englishmen. Second, Ireland served a long-established and useful function for the English. The hard work of the Irish people made their fields fertile enough to supply England with an abundant and inexpensive source of food. This enabled the new nobility of England, the owners of the expanding industries crowding English cities, to minimise the wages they paid their labourers. Moreover, these wealthy manufacturers had little interest in any industrial competition from Ireland. With strong influence in Parliament, they ensured that most existing Irish industries would soon fail. Religion provided the final obstacle for any real union based on principles of equality between Ireland and England. Most Englishmen belonged to the Protestant Church of England. Most Irishmen were Catholics. Centuries earlier, the people of England had been forced to abandon their Catholic religion for a new reformed religion independent of Rome, with King Henry VIII at its head. 
This religious transformation was very partial in Ireland, leaving the vast majority of the population still practising Catholics. Members of the Irish version of the English church remained small in numbers and felt very vulnerable. To protect their co-religionists, the English government forced the Irish Parliament to pass a series of penal laws that subjugated Catholics and Presbyterian emigrants from Scotland to an existence as unworthy others. One of these penal laws made their inferior status particularly obvious and galling. Each fall, Catholics and Presbyterians were forced to pay 10% of the value of their harvests to support the government religion. The English government found that religious divisions in Ireland provided a useful tool for control. They became very skilled at creating laws that favoured one religion over another, thus ensuring that the religious groups would not unite in opposition to English rule. They understood that supporters of the established church would react with hostility or violence to any action that would grant any rights to Catholics and to a lesser extent to Presbyterians. And so, one miserable decade followed another for the people of Ireland. By the third decade of the 19th century, there was finally a bit of hope for change in the endless status quo. Daniel O'Connell, the charismatic leader of the Catholic community of Ireland, had been able to force the repeal of the last of the penal laws in 1829 after years of intense effort. For the first time, Catholics could hold seats in Parliament. Ordinary Catholics believed that they were finally free. Members of the established church even feared this might be the case. In this situation, Presbyterians were placed in a middle position, pulled towards Catholics or Protestants as members of the established church were known, according to the current crisis. Whenever the power of both groups would be enhanced or diminished by an alliance with the Presbyterians, followers of this faith experienced considerable pressure from their countrymen and close attention from successive English ministries. One complication made use of their potentially powerful situation problematic for Presbyterians. They were an independent group, not amenable to holding a unified opinion about any issue, religious or political. As the democratic ideas of America crossed the ocean, ideas so in keeping with the principles of their religion, Presbyterians began to experience increasing suspicion from both the Catholic hierarchy and the Protestant establishment. To really understand how this history affected the ordinary people of Ireland and indirectly the history of several other countries as well, it is helpful to follow the lives of real people who lived through the years of devastation of the mid-19th century, years when civil war was a possibility and famine a reality. The three principles of Dwelling Place of Dragons lived in a lovely part of southern Ulster, where Ice Age debris provided a rolling landscape along the northern slopes of the Mourne Mountains. On this good land, farmers of different religions lived and worked in close proximity. Here, three men, James Harshaw, John Martin and George Henderson, Presbyterians all, connected by friendship or family, recorded history as it happened and then faded into oblivion. Their writing survived, some miraculously, and provide the major sources for this history. Their stories remain relevant 160 years later.
Dwelling Place of Dragons, Chapter 1, Religious Peace, 1830. James Harshaw left the fields one March afternoon in 1830, while it was still light for working. He hurried up a steep hill in the townland of Ringelish, his destination a small cottage near the top, which he shared with his young family. On this particular afternoon, James had a special appointment that resulted from his position as a respected community leader. The task that took him away from his work in the fields early was both pleasant and sad. Yet another of his Protestant neighbours was emigrating from Ireland and James was in charge of the farewell dinner that was planned for that Friday evening. His wife Sarah, who James fondly called the Dandy, was waiting for him when he reached their cottage. She had warm water ready to fill the large wooden bathtub and his good suit was placed carefully across their bed. With work clothes set aside and the grime of a day's work washed away, James dressed for his evening responsibilities. His black suit and fancy vest seemed to transform him from an ordinary farmer into an Irish gentleman. James was a tall man, rather plain by Irish standards, his brow a bit too wide, his chin a bit too narrow. But his kindly grey eyes made up for those deficits. He was a man to know. When he was ready... He climbed into his jaunting car for the trip to the Four Mile House, where local social events took place. The jaunting car was the main vehicle of transportation in rural Ireland. The driver sat on a bench facing forward as in most wagons, while passengers sat on benches that lined the sides of the open car. Ordinarily, James walked to his destinations as horses were too essential for field work to be used for transportation. Only on special occasions would James ask one of his workers to prepare the car for personal use. Tribute dinners followed a set pattern, and this event on Friday evening, the 19th of March, provided a good example. Robert Waddell of the nearby townland of Uli, a much-respected and worthy young man, was entertained by a numerous and respectable assembly of his friends on the occasion of this intended emigration to America. The four-mile house was perfectly suited to such events. There were two large stone barns behind the inn, one where horses and wagons could be safely left, the second where a large loft had been set aside for important gatherings. A sturdy stone stairway located outside the barn led to the meeting room on the second floor. The evening's events began after six o'clock when the party sat down to dinner. As chairman of the dinner, James sat nearest the fire, the only source of heat on this cool March evening. His good friend, John McCullough, was the vice chairman and sat next to him. When everyone had finished dinner, the cloth having been removed, James offered his customary toasts. The King, may he be the father to his people, Duke of Clarence in the Navy. Duke of Cumberland and the rest of the royal family, the Lord Lieutenant, may his late generosity be imitated. The official toast that James offered to his departing friend showed James's speaking skills, wisdom and sense of humour. Standing at the head table with his notes before him, he began his speech. Gentlemen, it is now my pleasing duty to give you the health of our worthy and estimable guest. He is a young gentleman for whom I entertain the most sincere respect and of whom, judging on his future character from his past conduct, I augur great things. 
During his stay with us, he has been charitable and humane to a high degree. He's also been deservedly prosperous, but yet he is determined on removing to a foreign land where he hopes to pass a tranquil and happy life. We hope so too, most ardently hope so. And it is on the eve of his crossing the wide Atlantic that we, his friends and neighbours, gather round him to offer the right hand of good feeling, to take the farewell grasp. And while we do so, we sincerely assure him that, though he's us, still he's with us present in our mind. There is scarcely a better criterion of the worth of an individual than his sentiments of the poor. From the situation in which I have stood for some past time, I have been brought greatly into contact with them and therefore have an opportunity of knowing their opinions with respect to him. And I am happy in being enabled to say that they are decidedly and universally in his favour. You could scarcely enter the cot of a poor, helpless creature in the neighbourhood without hearing of the benevolence of Mr Robert Waddell. Your character, my young friend, stands high with your countrymen here. Long may it do so in that land to which you intend to emigrate. James then offered what he considered to be appropriate advice. May I be allowed to say that, to preserve a high character, it is necessary to be associated with the virtuous of all classes. The rich man is not to be despised, but if you have nothing to recommend him except his riches, he is only the more dangerous companion. In one word, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all other things shall be added to you. Though James, as chairman of the evening's event, had delivered the major speech, there were others offered to complete the evening's festivities. First, Mr Waddell rose to respond to the toast James had offered. After thanking James, he said that he would long remember this evening, an honour he felt beyond his contributions. Robert's response was followed by toasts to the local clergymen along with their responses. As was customary, a salute to the press was offered. The press, the advocate of the liberty of the subject. Finally, the evening events concluded with a toast to the chairman. Mr H. Waddell concluded with proposing the health of the chairman, on whose character he pronounced a well-merited eulogium. Several other toasts were proposed and speeches made, and the hilarity of the evening was kept up till an advanced hour. These happy moments for James were but a brief interlude in what for him was the saddest of springs. Like other Irish farmers, James rose before the dawn and left immediately for the fields without taking time for breakfast. Those were the weeks when potatoes were set and oats and hay planted. When James had ensured that the hired labourers were working in the jobs that were most needed, he frequently took the road to the Harshaw House in the townland of Ringbane, where he had been born and lived until his marriage. There, two members of his family were nearing the end of their days. His mother, Mary Bradford Harshaw, had outlived her husband James by eight years, but her life was now numbered in days. Mary Harshaw was only one of the sick family members. James' only surviving brother William was also ill. James visited frequently, but the main care of the sick at Ringbane fell to servants and his sister Jane. When William died, he and Jane Harshaw Martin would be the only survivors of the large family born to James and Mary Harshaw. Mary Bradford Harshaw died on May 1st and William died unmarried on May 17th. 
Brothers Hugh and John, a physician in the Royal Navy, had died earlier, and now William had gone as well. Jane acquired her share of the family property when she married Samuel Martin, and now James came into his own inheritance, becoming the sole occupier of an estate of over 60 Irish acres in the townlands of Ringbane, Ringalish and Ardcura. These extensive holdings placed him among the most prosperous Irish farmers, yet in the rigid social structure of Ireland, still below the level of the gentry. The social structure of Ireland was of no great concern to James. He ignored its customs when they conflicted with his conscience. Men of the better sort did not marry before they had reached full age. James was not yet twenty when he married, though he did follow the expectation that he would marry someone of the same social class. For him there would be no arranged marriage. He married out of his great love for Sarah Kidd and not for social obligation. Sally, as Sarah was known to her friends, lived in Ringalish with her parents William and Elizabeth, her sisters and one brother. She was a very tiny Irish beauty, just the sort of young girl to attract more than one Irish farmer. But James was clearly a lad of such potential that he soon routed the competition. Irish couples had limited opportunities to meet outside of formal situations, but they found ways to meet whenever James worked the harsh off fields nearby. Somehow they were able to persuade both sets of parents that they should marry. The wedding took place early in 1815 and the young couple moved into one of the small family cottages in Ringalish. James and most Irish farmers lived just a bit of bad luck away from disaster. He owned very little in his own name, the household furniture, the family clothes, farming tools and livestock. His home, barns and outbuildings and all the land were maintained and improved through James' investment of time and money, but were owned by someone else. For many years this land, the Donoghmore estate, had been owned by the Vaughan family. The Vaughans lived nearby and were considered good landlords. James's father had held long-term leases for many acres of Donoghmore estates, which made a secure and comfortable life for his children at least a possibility. All the land that his father had leased now came to James to protect, enhance or lose. Many factors that affected the outcome of his efforts were beyond his control. The first such events occurred when the English army defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo shortly after James and Sally had married. The high prices for Irish crops, which had brought prosperity during the war, suddenly plummeted. A prolonged depression descended over Ireland. Along with the extensive family land holdings, James inherited the larger family home where he'd been born and raised. The extra space would certainly add to the comfort of the family, which would soon increase once more. Sally managed the move while several months pregnant. Son Robert was born early in 1831 as they were settling into the new home and extended responsibilities. The family home, built of stone plastered and washed white, rested near the bottom of a drumlin, so there was no grand view of the nearby Mourne Mountains. The roof shifted in colour from golden when newly thatched to a dark and sooty brown when near time for replacement. A rough stone wall protected the front garden from wandering sheep and cows or streams of muddy water sent flying by the wheels of passing carts. Important visitors entered through an unusual arched front door into a small hallway that connected the kitchen on the left 
with a parlour on the right. This door matched the arch of the big doors that allowed visitors to drive through a high wall that connected the house with a barn and enclosed the barnyard that lay beyond. There, friends and neighbours secured their horses and carts near the back entrance to the kitchen, where they were assured of a warm welcome and a cup of tea. The new Harshaw home was none too spacious for this large family, which began with the birth of son Hugh, now 13, and included Mary, 11, John, 9, Jane, 7, James, 5, William, Kid, 4, and ended for the moment with Andrew, aged 2. Most Irish families lived in one or two room cottages. Though James was a very prosperous farmer by Irish standards, the Harshaw house was originally only three rooms larger. The first floor had one main room, one step down from the large kitchen. A stairway to the second level began near the back door and ended at a gallery in the front. The gallery connected one large bedroom to two small bedrooms on the uphill side of the house. At some time in the history of the house, additions were made. A small extension was added next to the kitchen. The front portion became the wee parlour, where James managed his accounts and met his labourers every Saturday to pay them their week's wages. Two closets had been created from the large parlour and the large bedroom above it. The lower closet was occupied by house servants. The upper one was used for the newest addition to the family. Finally, the house was extended by a large room that James referred to as the Upper House. This space was used for large parties and religious meetings. Certainly James and the Dandy were sad to leave their first home and the close friends they had made in the neighbourhood, some of them Sally's relatives. Others were young families who lived just across the fields from the Harshaw Cottage. Chief among those friends were the Todd brothers, James and Hugh, who shared the land in Ringclare they had inherited from their father. Even after the move to Ringbane was completed, James walked over to visit, keeping friendship strong. In order to fulfil his obligations to Mr Vaughan and his own self-esteem, James needed to be recognised as a superior farmer, and indeed he was. James could perform many farm tasks as well as the best farm labourer, yet he had acquired the knowledge of agriculture, animal management and business skills required of important farmers. He followed the weather, searching the signs for the best time to plant. He followed market forces, searching for the best time to sell. Year after year, the tasks of spring were the same. Proper field preparation and timely planting were the key to profitable harvests in the fall. James was principally a grain farmer at this time, oats being his main product, though he planted some wheat as well. He had a substantial herd of cows and other farm animals for which he had to provide winter food. For this, he grew hay and increasingly frequently mangle, wurzel and other forms of turnips. Since Donoughmore was near an area where the linen industry was centred, James could make money growing flax for local mills as well. Farming was a labour-intensive job before the advent of machinery. James hired several men who regularly worked his property. These men were shared with other farmers when larger crews were necessary. One of these labourers, Paddy Duff, had previously worked for James's father for several years. Paddy remained in James's service until he died, and his son Joseph, or Joe as James always referred to him, continued to work for the family throughout his life as well. 
the Duffs came to be so trusted by the Harshaws that they frequently conducted business for the family without family supervision. They lived in a cottage in the townland of Ardkira that James rented to them. Every Saturday evening, James would wait in the wee parlour for his workers to come in for their pay. James paid them a shilling per day, for which they worked from sunup to sundown. During the short days of winter, when farm work was greatly reduced, James kept them employed, repairing buildings, ditching fields and taking produce to market. Labourers were only paid for work actually performed, so an illness or accident could result in immediate financial crisis. To mitigate this kind of problem, James frequently hired the wives and children of his workers as well. He paid them 4D a day for weeding, 6D a day for pulling flax. If a worker needed money to pay for a trip to the fair or to buy a pair of brogues, a rough Irish boot, or to bury a family member, James would provide an advance to be paid off by additional work later. When a labourer left, James would overpay the best of them. One important factor that made life easier for James and his neighbours was their proximity to the market town of Newry. When the crops were harvested, James took his produce to market for sale to the grain buyers who worked for English companies. Newry was located on the main road between Dublin and Belfast and the head of Carlingford Loch, assets which facilitated trade between southern Ulster and England. Not surprisingly, it was a cluttered town, hordes of beggars clustering around farmers, wagons, hands raised upward begging for a penny or two, or seeking rest against the new shops that lined Hill Street. On market days, the narrow streets were blocked by horse carts loaded with oats or flax. Troops of British soldiers from the local barracks frequently forced their way through these obstacles on their way to the latest sectarian confrontation. The pleasant fragrance from the new bakery was overwhelmed by the stench of unwashed bodies, the rotten carcasses littering the yard of the tallow factory, and piles of human and animal excrement heaped in the alleys. During the illness and death of mother and brother, the bereaved Harshaws and Martins were much consoled by their Presbyterian faith. Both families were staunch supporters of the Donmore Presbyterian Church. At least once each Sabbath, dressed in their best clothes, they travelled down the meeting house path to attend service. Presbyterian meeting houses were simple buildings, unadorned by steeples or statuary. The service followed a basic plan. The minister selected passages from the Bible to interpret for the congregation. Prayer a sermon, and the unaccompanied singing of psalms completed the service. The understandings imparted to the congregation by this service were to be incorporated into the daily practice of their religion. In order to reinforce the information from the Sabbath services, Presbyterians were expected to read the Bible daily and to end each reading with prayer. James ensured that he and his family fulfilled this obligation When he had completed the reading of Revelations, he began the next service with the opening words of Genesis. Presbyterians believed that each member was free to use what they had learned at the meeting house and through personal Bible study into practice in ways dictated by individual conscience rather than by any dogma imposed by a centralised power structure. When James was born, the minister of the congregation was Reverend Joseph Hay. He was a 
man of strong convictions and of great independence of character, who knew his duty and did it. Reverend Hay died in 1803 and was succeeded by Reverend Moses Finlay in 1804. Reverend Finlay would be minister for 33 years. He was an earnest man, a popular preacher and very zealous in establishing Sunday schools within the bounds of the congregation. He was a very father to his people whose counsel and guidance they largely sought in their multifarious concerns. James had known Reverend Finlay all his life and was very fond of him. James became a ruling elder in the church in Donoghmore, as his father had been before him. As such, he was basically the lay administrator of church affairs, the permanent presence when ministers came and went. The fact that James held political views that differed from many of his Presbyterian neighbours made little difference when James assumed this important position. His desire for Irish independence wasn't seen as a reason to disqualify him from church leadership by church members. When James had moments for himself, he enjoyed sitting in his special chair by the kitchen fire. It was a cosy spot, protected from draughts about the back door by a half wall. A window in the wall allowed James to see any activity at the door without getting up. The light from the turf fire made that a suitable place for James to read his newspaper. Throughout his life he subscribed to the Newry Commercial Telegraph. Like other newspapers of the day, the Telegraph supported a political party, in this case the Conservative Party, or Tories. This was most satisfactory to James as he was a Conservative supporter himself. The Telegraph covered local news, parliamentary debates, international actions, court cases, farm information and market prices. Except in matters of politics, the Telegraph was a progressive paper. It contained poetry, serialised fiction and reviews of the latest fashions for the women. James read his Telegraph very carefully, appreciating the irony of bewigged noblemen from England creating laws for the poor people of Ireland, about whom they knew little and cared less. He shared his paper with all his neighbours, passing around each edition to poor neighbours who could read and reading it to those who couldn't. By this method, the lightly educated and predominantly illiterate farmers of Ireland gained information about the larger world and issues of importance. While newspapers were important to most farmers, James had another interest that set him apart from other farmers. When he was still a young man, he began to write down the most important activities of the day. The earliest entry was dated July 11th, 1825. Sent with Robert Pug a one-pound note to font for lime, and he returned same with uh, five barrels. The place to which he had sent one of his farm labours was, in reality, Fahart, a centre of lime production in nearby County Louth. Over the years, this trip was repeated many times as liming fields regularly were essential to keep the heavy Irish soil productive. At first, James confined his journal to business and legal affairs as they occurred. James considered his carefully written ledger pages important as he continually expanded the information he recorded. Finally, he became a daily narrative to add to his family's business record. At first, James confined his journal to business and legal affairs as they occurred. 
James considered his carefully written ledger pages important as he did continuously expand the information he recorded. Finally, he began a daily narrative to add to his business records. As the summer of 1830 approached, life appeared quite normal. The roads and lanes of the countryside around Newry were busy places. Barefoot boys drove cows from barns to pastures for grazing. Labourers followed behind collecting stuff, as James called it, which the cows had left behind in the road, shoveling it onto drag sleds to be taken to the manure pile in the farmyard. Farmers walked about visiting their fields, their friends or the poor in their neighbourhoods. Women chatted with passers-by as they laid their wash out to dry on the hedges or paused to shop from the handcarts of passing peddlers. These simple events brought Catholic and Protestant together. Their easy interaction of previous years had become more cautious in 1830, while everyone waited to see what would result from the end of the penal laws the year before. Local and national leaders called for restraint after Catholics were given the right to hold public office for the first time in over a century. Irishmen of all religions seemed to follow this advice. Protestants were silent when Daniel O'Connell, who'd led the long fight to end this last penal law, became the first Irish Catholic to sit in Parliament. Catholics avoided any appearance of triumph. Emancipation of Irish Catholic leaders did little for most Irish Catholic families. Hunger remained as much a part of every spring for them as it had been for the frantic survivors in the time of Cromwell. Without major effort by those with assets and land, those without either faced an unhappy choice, beg or die. James believed that alleviating hunger was an obligation of all Christians with financial assets. But he was also convinced that the English government had acquired the same kind of responsibilities towards Ireland when they dismantled the Irish government and suggested Ireland to English control. James could not have been pleased to read the English view of Irish poverty, as reported in The Telegraph. The Duke of Wellington, the British Prime Minister, gave a speech in which he declared that distress does not exist to any amount in Ireland. This seemed an extraordinary statement since there was general agreement that two-thirds of the population faced extreme hunger almost every year. The Conservative ministers had a reason for taking this absurd stand. They intended to increase taxes on many of the items that the Irish bought from England. As the Telegraph reported, they feel it expedient to lighten the burden on wealthy England pronounce it perfectly just and reasonable that a proportionate addition should be made to the load of taxation that even now bears down to the earth-poor, despised, poverty-stricken Ireland. James and the people of Newry understood the reality in Ireland too well not to find the actions of the English government infuriating. The editor of the Telegraph made clear to his readers the true situation he saw around him in Ulster. But it will not do... Mere assertions relative to a fancied prosperity will not make us prosperous any more than the shadow of food will satisfy the cravings of a starving man. The melancholy truth is that distress is very general all over the country, but especially in the towns and districts where linen and cotton manufacturers have been hitherto attempted. 
In this town, moreover, where no such manufactures to any extent are carried on, pauperism is rapidly on the increase. Want, like an armed man, is invading the habitations of many families who have never been submitted to the degradation of seeking elementary relief. And this is the chosen period for inflicting on us a new heavy and odious taxation. The same leader in the Telegraph went on to describe the situation in Newry. Hungry men, women and children, ill-clothed against the weather, came to the local Mendicity Society for food. The Mendicity Society had been formed to allow the prominent citizens of Newry to ensure that the funds they donated to alleviate the almost perpetual suffering of local paupers were properly administered. Unfortunately, funds to operate the charity had run out. At a meeting of the Mendicity Committee of Newry, resolutions were passed that no more food could be supplied until new funds were available. This was indeed the hungry season in Ireland. In late spring, the potato harvest from the previous year could stretch no further. The peasants of Ireland had no money to buy food. Annual famines and the diseases that follow in train of famine are hailed by the great as a wise dispensation of providence in restoring the balance between mouths and food. The citizens of Newry were too personally involved to adopt a cavalier approach to Irish hunger prevailing in England. So a group of prominent citizens in Newry met to solve the problem without imperial assistance. They elected to open a soup kitchen, as they had done during hard times in years past. Besides offering soup, they would offer bread or meal at reduced prices for the poor who had lived in Newry for at least a year. A collection to fund this project was organised, the town being divided into seven districts, where clergymen of all denominations, supported by a number of civic leaders, were to collect contributions. Together, the collectors would become the management committee. Mr Smithson Corrie would act as treasurer and the Reverend Daniel Baggett, rector of one of the local Episcopalian churches, as secretary. Poverty was one issue that seemed to soften sectarian differences. By the end of June, local efforts to aid the poor had produced results and the soup kitchen opened. It provided each adult one meal a day of a pint of soup and a half pound of brown bread. This food was available only to those who could qualify for a ticket. And to get a ticket, each hungry citizen would have to prove his or her eligibility to a local inspector. This provision was not a complete solution to the problem. Only the poorest of the poor would accept the degradation that accompanied standing in line for charity. There were others who had succumbed to poverty who were unwilling to parade their failures in public. The committee had voted to provide tickets that would allow those suffering citizens to buy oatmeal at one-third of the cost, enabling them to survive as well. The new soup kitchen quickly attracted a large crowd of desperate citizens and was soon distributing 400 gallons of soup a day, or a pint to each of 3,200 starving people. In the country, James and other landlords of Donoughmore were providing work or food for the poor who lived among them. Each year, as the days lengthened and the fields turned green, thoughts turned towards the celebrations of the Orange Order held every July. 
The order was a Protestant fraternal organisation organised to create a Protestant armed force that could protect them from the Catholic majority. To the Catholic population, Orange marches seemed designated to remind them of their inferior position and to reinforce it. Every July, the Orange Order celebrated previous Catholic defeats at the Battle of the Boyne in Achram, centuries before. Some years, they organised marches through Catholic neighbourhoods. With guns on their shoulders, they came prepared for battle. On other years, they gathered quietly in their lodges. If the uneasy calm between Protestant and Catholic in Ulster was to continue, the Orange men would need to give up their marches. On St Patrick's Day, Catholics had set an example by holding no marches. Unfortunately, the Orange leaders ordered the lodges to march. James certainly was aware well before July 12th arrived that there would be a march, this time into Catholic Newry. This was a march that Donmore Orange Lodge intended to participate in. On marching day, the orange men were on the road early. James watched some of the members pass by his house on their way to the lodge hall, which was located further along the Ringbane Road. Later in the morning, he heard the booms of their great lambeg drums as members formed up to march away. The Moor Lodge joined lodges from Loch Brickland as they passed the Four Mile House. Another stream of marchers left Warren Point, Around noon, the two groups of marchers joined the Newry Lodges, creating a large gathering of somewhere between 40 and 50 lodges. They formed into one long procession behind their bands and their victory banners. They intended to march through the heart of Newry. As they made their way down Kildare Street, Hill Street and on to William Street, they were hooted and booed by clusters of Catholics gathered at each corner. Then they turned into Boat Street, a heavily populated and Catholic section of town. Even in this neighbourhood, no violence occurred. The Orange men arrived safely at Market Street and turned back towards Hill Street. At that point, a rapid sequence of violent events transpired. First, a few stones were thrown in the direction of the marchers. Then one of the flag bearers flipped his flag into the face of a bystander. Two women grabbed for it and the dangerous tug of war ensued, the women being quickly assisted by several nearby men. This small struggle generated volleys of stones from several directions that fell among the orange marchers. Several orangemen produced pistols and began shooting into the crowd. Two of the shots resulted in injuries. The first casualty was a man named Ryan who was shot in the hip. The bullet broke his hip, leaving him in a dangerous condition. The other victim was actually a Protestant, Charlie, the band beggar, whose job it was to chase beggars out of town. The bullet was removed from his thigh and he was expected to recover. The battle continued sporadically even after the orange men moved back along Hill Street. Eventually, intense efforts by a Mr Orr Hamilton and Mr John Ellis and two magistrates, Mr Henry and Mr Bailey, and the prominent priest, Reverend Dr Keenan, restored order for the moment. Unfortunately, isolated confrontations took place as the orange men left Newry to return home. The appearance of a division of police under Captain Ebhart and that under Captain Brennan, together with two or three companies of the 9th Regiment of Foot, dispersed the last rioters. Only four people were immediately arrested. By the time the judicial hearing of the riot took place a week later, many more arrests had been made. 
32 men and women were charged, an equal number from both sides. The trial resulted in small fines for each participant and a lecture from the judge. While the results of the march were very ordinary, they were also very disappointing to the leaders of Newry. Rather than waiting passively for the new religious tensions to fade, they decided to take action. Civic leaders requested the Senegal to call a meeting to discuss the march and its results. In England, the position of Senegal was an ancient one with powers similar to those of a more contemporary judge. In Ireland, the Senegal was more a ceremonial official whose powers were limited to summonsing the citizens of Newry to meetings and presiding over them. Alexandra Peacock, the editor of the Telegraph, strongly supported the meeting. Too long had Ireland suffered under internal dissension and strife. Her children had been quarrelling about a bauble, a colour, a name, while the best interests of their common country had been entirely neglected. It is time that Irishmen were wise. Let them give up their unprofitable squabbling, strengthen each other's hands, and unite together in an indissoluble bond of union. Let them do this, and they may then laugh to scorn the enemies of their country, those who would weigh her down with taxes and extinguish forever the voice of the organ which the fawning placeman and courtier fear so much, a free press. Let them do this, and they will become too powerful to be oppressed. Let them do this, and we shall hear no more of those infamously unjust taxes. Newry's leaders quickly began the steps necessary for an official town meeting. A request of the Seneschal to call a meeting of the inhabitants of Newry was written on July 17th. The goal of this meeting was clearly to attempt to put an end to all sectarian marches. This request was signed by Protestant and Catholic leaders, members of the clergy of all faith, including Bishop Kelly for the Catholic Church, Daniel Baggett for the Established Church and John Mitchell for the Presbyterian Church, as well as Justices of the Peace, Smithson and Trevor Curry and Thomas Henry, John Knox, the sitting Member of Parliament, Alexandra Peacock, the owner of the Telegraph. Isaac Glinney, the Senechal for Newry, set the meeting for one o'clock on Monday, July 26th, 1830 at the Session House. James certainly endorsed such a peace meeting and doubtless prayed for its success, but it is unlikely that he attended. This was the time of year to cut and stack the hay crop, a task more important than physical presence at any meeting. He certainly found the report of this meeting much to his liking. At the appointed time, a large crowd assembled, filling the hall within a couple of minutes. The first resolution went right to the heart of the issue. It was presented by the Honourable John Knox, Newry's representative in Parliament, and seconded by Bishop Kelly, and quickly agreed to. Resolved that charity and universal goodwill towards our neighbour, being not only a sacred Christian duty, but also a necessary bond of that social peace without which neither domestic happiness can be maintained, nor public and national prosperity advanced, we pledge ourselves to use our best endeavours to promote the extension of charity and goodwill among our countrymen, without reference to their religious or political opinions. The second resolution was equally appropriate. Resolved that, whilst we rejoice to witness the increasing anxiety of all the respectable classes of our countrymen, to bury in oblivion all past differences, to discontinue all causes of excitement and to encourage the peace and prosperity of Ireland, 
And whilst we are convinced that these objects cannot be accomplished but by the extension of party spirit and the discontinuance of party processions of every description, we have to deplore that these causes of disunion and excitement have still their existence in our town and country. Finally, resolved that as the prosperity of our country is retarded, its peace interrupted and the lives of our fellow citizens endangered by the continuance of such party processions, this meeting do petition the legislator to devise such measures as we may put an end to party processions of every kind and description. One by one, the religious leaders of Newry rose to speak eloquently to their respective denominations. Reverend Dr. Kelly, or C, Bishop of Dromore, and Primate-elect spoke first. Our object is, sir, to unite our countrymen in one bond of fellowship, to consolidate Protestant and Catholic into one social body, to harmonise its members by drawing closer together the cords of union and to infuse into this new creation the spirit of peace, of mutual affection, of reciprocal kindness. Our object is to persuade Irishmen of every denomination to consign to oblivion their past differences and to show them practically, by our example, that charity is the bounden duty of every Christian. God has commanded us to love our neighbour as ourselves. Let us all then cooperate together. Do you, gentlemen, require to be reminded how fruitful a source of calamity party spirit has been to Ireland? Do you not feel too sensibly its effects operating on your commercial and agricultural interest? Yes, it has not only disturbed our peace, soured the charities of social fraternity and roused into lively action the discordant elements of the worst passions of our nature, but it has left Ireland centuries behind in commercial prosperity. It has retarded her industry, banished commerce from her shores and obstructed the influx of capital into the country. Why, let me ask, are 5,000 paupers at this moment thrown as a burden on your charity, receiving a pittance daily at your soup kitchen, and this in a town seated in the most wealthy province of Ireland, a town whose navigation and harbour invite commercial enterprise? I answer the divisions and mischievous dissensions of Irishmen, but let us cast a veil over the scene. Let us look to the means of future prosperity. The Honourable Mr Knox has, by his resolution, directed your attention to a mine of wealth yet unexplored, to a new source of affluence that party spirits have kept sealed. That fountain is peace. Let us open it. Other towns will aid us in the good work. They will cut canals by which its salutary streams will flow into every county. Each village and hamlet shall add its rivulets, endowing it with tributary streams, until one great river shall be formed, spreading happiness and fertility and prosperity over the land. Reverend John Mitchell spoke for the Presbyterian Church. I sincerely concede in sentiment with those gentlemen who have previously addressed the meeting in lamenting the continued manifestation of this unhappy spirit of party which has been the source of so much mischief and misery to our unfortunate country and I entertain an anxious desire to employ any ability and influence which I may possess in endeavouring to repress that evil spirit and to substitute in its room the spirit of peace and goodwill, of Christian charity and brotherly kindness among all classes and denominations of our countrymen. 
We have seen the streets of our generally peaceful town within these few days converted into a frightful scene of danger, uproar and civil broil. The peace of the country has been awfully violated. Human life has been not only endangered but in some classes destroyed and the minds of men who might otherwise have lived in peace and good neighbourhood grievously embittered against each other all over the country. And all of this at a time when our combined and most strenuous efforts are scarce able, as it appears, to preserve the people of the country from absolute starvation. Sir, it is time that this country should have something like peace and repose, and if this cannot be obtained, it would be foolish to look for national improvement and prosperity. How is it to be expected that, amidst the excitement of party spirit and the broils of contending factions, which we have been doomed to witness frequently and periodically, this country should prosper in any of its interests? Or how is it to be thought that the spirit of peace on earth and goodwill towards men should be cherished amidst such scenes of outrage and discord? Sir, it appears to me highly desirable on all these accounts that the legislator of the country should at length be earnestly solicited to interpose and by a strong enactment render it highly penal for any of the people of this country of any denomination farther to disturb or endanger the public peace and prosperity by any of their foolish and furious party processions. And I am persuaded that many even among the misguided themselves on all hands, would rejoice in such a measure as relieving them from the supposed obligations of supporting their respective parties and keeping up their respective party processions. I do believe that these public exhibitions of party spirit of all kinds are lamented and discountenanced by all the wise and well-meaning in this community of every denomination, and it is high time that the government of the country should seriously think of suppressing them altogether. Reverend Mr. Daniel Baggett spoke for the established church. Sir, these processions are not only merely useless as evidence of peculiar opinions, but they are in direct violation of the precepts of Christianity, in the practical part of which we are all universally agreed, not to mention the spirit of party triumph and the assumption of party ascendancy which may give rise to them. In their tendency and operation they are in direct opposition to the sacred precepts which inculcate the duty to live peacefully with all men and to cultivate Christian benevolence and charity to such a sublime extent as to love our enemies, to bless them that curse us, to do good to them that hate us and to pray for them that despitefully use and persecute us. Sir, these public exhibitions of party feelings are inconsistent with the genius of the present times. Bigotry and persecution and intolerance under any modification, however partial, should now be deprecated and we should all cordially unite in endeavouring to advance these purposes of conciliation which our rulers have in view. I cannot but again congratulate the inhabitants of Newry that they have been the first to come forward and to advocate the principles of Christian charity by which they are actuated. Sir, I anticipate the most glorious results from the proceedings of this day and from the patriotic and benevolent sentiments which have been expressed by those who have taken part in the business of the meeting and I only wish that the walls by which we are confined could be moved away and that every inhabitant of 
every country might hear and take precept an example from these statements which have been made. Too long, sir, have we professed to be Christians and yet have given but a meagre and partial illustration of the influence of charity, the most prominent and indispensable amongst the catalogue of Christian virtues. Too long, sir, have we been accustomed to regard it as a narrow and contracted feeling which should be circumscribed by the confined limits of family connections or domestic associations. Whereas real, genuine Christian charity like the sun which sends down its splendour from the guidance of men, without reference to creed or colour, is a feeling which cannot be restricted to any confined or partial development, which is no reference to the peculiar opinions of those towards whom it is directed, but which extends its influence from self to family, from family to kindred, from kindred to country until at length it comprehends with its expanded and unlimited circumference the entire family of man. James certainly prayed fervently that wonderful changes would flow from this meeting. He would have enjoyed the idea that a peace movement had begun in Newry, the town where the Act of Union had been signed into law. But James was too practical a man to be unaware that obstacles to peace were numerous and difficult to overcome. Still, the leaders of Newry, both religious and political, deserved great credit. A peace conference had actually taken place in Ireland. Nothing that happened afterwards could diminish its importance. Dwelling Place of Dragons by Marjorie Harshaw This production, narrated by Donald McCone, is brought to you by Irish Voices, Conversations with the Irish Diaspora.